The information provided on this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal, financial, or tax advice. The easiest thing for founders to mess up is their taxes, and they usually mess that stuff up at a very delicate stage in the business before they call lawyers, which is the worst possible thing. You have to find a lawyer who's at your risk level, or at least understands the risk level you're willing to accept, and is able to accommodate that. Hi, and welcome. This is Web 2.5, a show where we invite operators to share the gritty, behind-the-scenes truth of what it's like to build the organizations of tomorrow while keeping teams paid, compliant, and running today. I'm Grace, co-founder and CEO of Domo. Previously, I led operations for early-stage Web3 startups. It was pretty painful, so I want to discuss the challenges that I, and many others, face in setting up and scaling crypto projects and how we might overcome them. In today's episode, we're talking about the role of legal in crypto organizations. I'm really excited to welcome Brandon Ferk, co-founder and GC at B&J Studios, formerly Sullivan and Cromwell attorney and former GC of Injective Labs. Brandon, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you because I think legal is something that a lot of teams are very curious about when it comes to crypto, and a lot of teams are really trying to navigate this space. So maybe just to start from first principles, what is general counsel and why do teams need one? Why should teams hire one or when? Sure. And thanks for having me, Grace. A general counsel is a company's primary source for legal advice. It's their in-house attorney. Sometimes it's their only attorney for small businesses, but it's the first line that a company should rely upon, the C-suite or folks at the company, for any sort of legal guidance. And does that legal guidance cover all areas or considerations, or do you typically see like general counsel specializing in particular areas? Good question. It's flexible. I think that general counsel needs to rise to the needs of the business. And so the silos of information that you may need to develop over the course of your tenure at a particular business may change. That's not to say you're expected to become an expert at everything, but general counsels should at least be equipped enough to issue spot different problems and then be able to take those problems and questions and find somebody who does know the answer for the business. So outside counsel, you certainly shouldn't be expected to come in as a general counsel and know everything. Nobody knows every law about everything. And especially attorneys who come from big law firms are often siloed into one particular area of law, whether it's like mergers and acquisitions or venture capital stuff, tax, IP, whatever it is, it's all a particular area of law and there's always going to be gaps in your knowledge. So more than anything else, being able to identify when there's things that you don't know is what separates a good general counsel from a great one. I think you also asked what the right time to hire a general counsel is. It depends on the business. If it's a simple business and the needs are relatively light and they're doing just fine with outside counsel, then you may be okay for a while. But once the business starts to scale to a particular size where outside counsel is taking too long to deliver good answers or the area that you're working in is one where you constantly need legal oversight, like for example, crypto, it makes sense to hire that individual relatively early on in the process, either before a fundraising, if you're able to afford it, or shortly after your first fundraising, just to make sure that the ship is running smoothly. That makes a lot of sense. And I think 
from even my own experience, and I know you and I have talked about this a bit in the past, it's especially in crypto and Web3 can be very complicated to understand all of the different considerations that go into fundraising and that go into setting up your business and your entities, et cetera. And it's a huge pain point for many, many people who are building and trying to ship the projects that they're envisioning. On that note, actually, something that you and I spoke about in the past has been trying to see if there's a way where we can address that. And I think from that exercise, you were able to create a one-page open source SAFT or Simple Agreement for Future Tokens that you published. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, what inspired that, and what your goal is? So I developed that back when I was at Injective. We were in Lisbon for the Solana Breakpoint event, and I was at the time I was just talking to a handful of folks who were raising money more founders in the Web3 space, as well as my lawyer friends, and some of the difficulties that they were facing. And this Web3 market is interesting in that there's no strict industry standards that have developed over years and years of trial and error from a deal's perspective. And so folks are constantly reconfiguring the right way to do these deals. That's a good exercise in the abstract. Practically, what it means is that you're going to be seeing dozens of different forms or models or styles of fundraising in the Web3 space. It leads to a bit of aggravation for founders or investors as well, because they're seeing a bunch of different documents that have different mechanics. Their lawyers have to spend extra time reviewing those documents and getting up to speed. The individual the business principles as well have to become comfortable with these different forms and this changing legal structuring over time. And they're often long documents with a lot of language, and they're not standardized. It's just slow and inefficient. Coming out of these conversations, I thought that I could do a decent job at trying to standardize some of these things. By no means is this intended to cut out a lawyer. I always think that all Web3 projects should be consulting an attorney, whether it's their in-house counsel or external. They should definitely be having those conversations. But I looked at the market landscape of transactional documents that I saw, and I tried to synthesize them all down into the essential elements of what you need for fundraising, which is what you're getting and when. How many tokens, at what discount, what's the lockup? It's super simple. It all fits on one page. The important terms, some of the boilerplate, maybe some covenants and things on a go-forward basis, even definitions and an annex, those are all on GitHub. The one-page staff is designed to be a piece of paper that you can use to facilitate easy early stage financings and then have those standardized terms all public and existing on GitHub. So if anybody wants to propose changes over time, they could push a PR to the annex or to the glossary and make changes as needed. And it allows for the broader legal community and even the business community to opine and shape the future of what makes sense from a business perspective for fundraising in crypto. And by no means is this the right answer. I think a lot of folks are actually leaning away from SAFT, particularly in US markets, but you still see it in offshore markets. Just depends on what structure is hot and what makes sense for the particular deal that you're doing. It's so great to even have a standard template or at least recommendation for teams to look at, whether just to get oriented, to learn, et cetera. And I think it's great that it's on GitHub available for everyone to take a look at. I think that fits very much into this whole ethos of open source community and decentralization. And 
thinking about it from a legal perspective, I think it's an interesting tension to navigate because how do you think about being in this, quote, Wild West arena where it seems like a lot of things are still very gray and very undefined while working in career, working in a profession where professionals are very focused on setting rules and following structures. So if we're here today and our goal is to get to this point where let's say we have some sort of alternative, truly decentralized system that people can opt into, what are some of the key legal questions that we still have yet to answer? Or maybe what are some of the most interesting legal questions in your opinion? This is an interesting question. It's difficult to really imagine sovereign powers giving up their ability to regulate, control, have some sort of certainty. But at some point, there are jurisdictional limits. There's limits to what can be regulated, how, when, and where, and why. And I think the first question that we need to figure out is, what is that limit? That's a very loaded question because it's asking a lot of things. What is the activity that you're doing? Who is it affecting? How closely does it relate to existing activity? Even from jurisdictional, not just from the subject matter, but in the context of, are you targeting my sovereign nation or the constituents of my nation, like my people, with this technology? Is it reaching us? Other countries may have different regimes with respect to jurisdiction, but a lot of that is, what is the reach of these sovereigns, of these regulators, of these lawmakers? And once you find the reach, then you can say, okay, outside of this reach is what it means to be decentralized, because we're defining decentralization as the point at which the government can no longer control what you're doing. That doesn't mean operating in a way that's anonymous and allows you to illegally do particular types of things, but it means more of this is just the legal limit of a particular jurisdiction's ability to regulate or govern. Outside of that is where you have that sort of decentralized protective certainty. What that looks like, not entirely clear. There's guidance in the U.S. for the SEC's reach for what it means to no longer be targeting the U.S. or offering securities in the U.S. such that the SEC will no longer have authority over the transaction. But other regulatory regimes are different. There's still a lot of uncertainty there. So I think figuring out what that reach is a good first step. But of course, that requires you figuring out what is the thing that you're doing, who is it affecting and how, and what are the actual mechanisms underpinning how it works that will help inform that answer. I feel like we're seeing a lot of this type of tug and pull right now. And it makes you wonder if the question is around what is the reach, the first default is for the government or centralized entities to say all of it, all of it is within our jurisdiction, all of it is within our bounds of decision making. And it's on perhaps us, the community or the participants to say, no, we don't think so. This isn't in line with the way that your current bylaws are written or the way that your current mandate is written. So you're overreaching. But yeah, to your point, it's a very delicate dance, perhaps. <laughs> it's a good point, right? Because if you start at the broadest level, which is like governments, what can governments do? Only what they're empowered to be able to do. And where can you figure out what they're empowered to be able to do is look at the Constitution. It tells you what Congress can and cannot govern over. If you look at regulators, like a couple layers down. Regulators are also given powers by Congress to regulate in particular areas over particular things. They can't exceed that authority. It's very different from people, where people can just do whatever you want, unless it's enumerated as an illegal thing. So it's the opposite of a government. The governments 
and then corporations. They have to be empowered to be able to do things, whereas humans have power to do stuff like basically whatever, unless it's illegal and the power is taken away from you, which is an important distinction because when you think of governments as things that need to be given the power to do stuff, suddenly they can no longer say, oh, we actually regulate everything. It's actually, no, take a step back and let's look and see what you've been empowered to regulate or govern over. And then we can get closer to the answer of whether Web3 stuff is the kind of thing that is included in your mandate. And from a government perspective, like from a constitutional perspective, there's obviously limits to things. And I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I would imagine that's a much easier answer, the easier question to answer with respect to First Amendment rights. Like you can create stuff and do whatever you want. It's a little bit more difficult when it comes to interstate commerce, because that's a very broad power that could be given to Congress. Depending on the thing that you're doing and how it's being used, that ability to govern and regulate over the thing is going to flex and bend. But it's the right way to conceptualize it. What can you actually touch and do? And if you can't, what does that mean for that system? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. I think one of the most interesting ones generally that we're all working with for anyone that's working in Web3 or building in Web3, it's like we're on the cutting edge of pioneering the answers to these types of things. Going off on a slightly different note and circling back to what you had mentioned about when you were at Solana Breakpoint and you were speaking with other lawyers in your network, as well as many other teams to work on creating this one-page SAFT when you were GC at Injective Labs, and now you're also GC at B&J Studios. It sounds like you've spoken to a lot of teams in the space and you've had lots of conversations with lawyers as well. What are some of the biggest legal pitfalls that you've noted so far in terms of what you've seen people try or avoid doing? It really always circles back to taxes. Obviously, the securities regulation and stuff is an issue and navigating OFAC and KYC and all that stuff is a problem. The easiest thing for founders to mess up is their taxes, and they usually mess that stuff up at a very delicate stage in the business before they call lawyers, which is the worst possible thing. They'll go on LegalZoom or something and form an entity and get equity and never file 83Bs, or they'll sell tokens to someone and they get tokens themselves and they don't take care of their taxes appropriately and they end up with these multi-million dollar tax liabilities, which is a good problem to have when you have a bunch of money, but it's still an issue, messing it up way too early. The broader comment I'm making is that everybody who's in crypto and who's creating something, whether it's an NFT or it's art, you're, if you're selling something to someone or you're building something that could make you some money, talk to a lawyer first. <laughs> you don't want to... A, be selling something to someone illegally, and B, you want to make sure that you're not messing up your bags from a tax perspective. So definitely be careful and talk to lawyers. Outside of that, a lot of folks make mistakes in their marketing. The Web3 space is unique because these assets are freely transferable, I'll say. I mean, whether they're fungible or non-fungible, the US SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, takes the position rather aggressively that a lot of the things that are sold, whether they're tokens or fungible tokens or non-fungible NFTs, takes the position that a lot of these things are investment contracts, a type of security, which is a contract transaction or scheme whereby the purchaser is able to form a reasonable expectation of profits based on the efforts, of the essential managerial or entrepreneurial efforts of others. A lot of what goes into whether a purchaser is able to form that reasonable expectation of profit is the marketing that a lot of these crypto projects deploy and the things they say on Twitter 
whether they're talking about building, that building is going to reward early adopters or holders of their tokens or their NFTs. They're going to get dividend style distributions. These are all very bad things to say. And obviously, I am a lawyer, but I'm not anybody's lawyer who's listening to this, of course. Not your lawyer, Grace, I'm sorry. But (laughs) it's really important that before folks start just tweeting about stuff, they talk to a lawyer. Talk to a crypto lawyer. Find one that can tell you about your taxes and tell you about what you should say and shouldn't say. It's not going to be long, 45 minutes or an hour, one time to get trained on how to communicate in the Web3 space so that you're not accidentally creating a securities type relationship where others are looking to you for you to make them money. It's a very easy thing to mess up. And if you look at the recent SEC filings against Coinbase, it was the insider trading thing with Coinbase, and they named nine different token projects claiming these things to be securities, and that wasn't even the issue in the case. But if you just look at those facts that were alleged, a lot of the things the SEC is alleging circles around the marketing that these crypto projects with fungible tokens are deploying. I think that you have to be incredibly careful. That's one of the big risks that I'm seeing right now. And it goes back to the point of just make sure you're talking to a lawyer so you don't accidentally trip any of those wires. That's a really interesting way to look at it. On your first point that you mentioned about taxes, I'll just also add in, I a thousand percent agree. It is something that needs to be figured out as early as possible because I went through this with a couple projects and this was like my first time thinking about all these different things, international tax considerations, multiple entities, jurisdictions, et cetera. And it was so challenging to understand what was going on. And I can't imagine doing this without the attorney that I worked with, her name is Linda, and she was actually on an episode that we had earlier. But I'm so grateful that I found Linda and that we were able to work together on these questions because there were just so many layers to the issue when it came to taxes and affected not just the founders of the projects, but also all of the employees as well. So a hundred, a thousand percent agree on the taxes issue. On this marketing consideration, what's really interesting to me is that basically you're saying that the way that teams are talking about the NFT or the token is one of the biggest factors for the SEC regulators or anyone else to look at a project and say whether or not this is indeed a security. And is it really like that much about the framing of it versus what's actually happening, if that makes sense? Yes. I think that the framing is incredibly important because what you're doing is you're creating expectations based on what you're saying. And if you create expectations based on your actions, based on what you're saying, or based on what's actually happening underneath the hood, that you're going to help make somebody some money, you run the risk of that relationship, that scheme in a very broad sense being considered as a securities transaction that is an investment contract effectively. And so you do have to be careful about what you say. And you also have to be careful about the economic realities of the situation. You can imagine two worlds, one where you just tweet about pumping bags, and then one where you never tweet ever, but what the team does behind the scenes is actually do all the development work, give all of the grants, support all of the markets and the token, talk to all the exchanges about getting it listed, like doing all of the things in the US that are not good. And if you wanted a list, by the way, I know I've been talking about a lot of these factors. If you look at the strategic hub for innovation and financial technology, it's the SEC's Fin Hub. They have a list of 30-something factors. If you just Google 
FinHub Crypto Factors, you'll find a framework for analyzing digital assets that FinHub produced. It'll give you this whole rundown of all the different factors for all of the different prongs of what I described before, the test for whether something is an investment contract, colloquially known as the Howey test. And you'll be able to see where I'm coming from for this stuff. So maybe if we circle back to this concept of teams working together with counsel, whether it's a general counsel that they've hired internally or external counsel that they're engaging, what can teams or clients do to get the most out of working with their lawyers? I think speak to your lawyer early and often in the early stages of the project. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, and I wanted to make this comment previously. Professional advice is unfair. It's unfair because it's cash-gated. It's expensive. You're not going to be able to afford it unless you've raised money or you have money. And a lot of the things that you're doing right now incur a lot of risk that require you to spend this money and figure out the answer. Could cost you 30 grand to talk to just the tax guy to figure out these taxes. Could cost you 100 grand to a million dollars, depending on what you need to get your token off the ground from legal costs. It's expensive, but it's important. It's unfair because it does stifle innovation and it's the unfair lay of the land right now because of how regulators and Congress in the US have taken an approach to digital assets and blockchain technology. So it's not fair, but it's the reality. And if that's the reality, if you want to play these games and not get in trouble, you got to do the right thing, which is unfortunately spend that money to get there. But that should also mean that if that's the way it works, then hopefully it's less rugs and more people who really care about doing this right. But to be fair, people who are just going to rug, they're committing fraud anyway. They're not really going to spend the money. But I do think that you should speak to your lawyer early and often. I think that when you speak to your lawyer, the best thing you can do is to give them just an information dump. Tell them everything relevant about the project. Even if you don't think it may be important, just give it to them. Give them the most full and complete picture that you can. Be clear in what you're trying to do, but explain it to them. You can try and use analogies if it would be helpful, but always go back to what you're actually doing and how it's distinguished from other things. Because lawyers really need a complete picture of the facts in order to start to be able to advise you because they'll take those facts that you give them and then take a look at the regulatory landscape based on what they know and other fact patterns and draw Venn diagrams in their mind and find similarities and distinctions and give you an answer. What you really shouldn't do is speak in shorthand or try and dumb it down because you think the lawyer is not going to understand or be choppy. And it's doing you a disservice. You're not going to get a good answer. And then when you get in trouble, you're going to say, hey, but my lawyer checked this. And you're going to go back to the lawyer and say, why did we get in trouble for this? And the lawyer's going to say, you never told me this. You said it was this. You said it was X, but it's actually X plus Y. So just make sure you're being clear and consistent, and you're giving everything. And then if you're changing stuff along the way, call your lawyer. Don't be afraid to tell them you're changing your route because the advice that they give you is going to be limited to just that narrow subset of facts that you're telling them. And unless they're aware of the changes as things happen over time, you're not going to be able to rely on that previous advice, which is why it's nice to have a general counsel in-house because instead of having to pay by the hour for the advice, now you have somebody on salary you can just abuse hopefully not literally, please don't abuse me, <laughs> for advice as things change. General counsels are able to be more proactive too. Rather than doing something and then calling your outside counsel to check and make sure it's okay, your general counsel will sit in the room and hear what's being developed over time as it's happening live and we will think about what needs to 
happen three, four, five, six steps down the line and can prepare for that stuff and talk to outside counsel and make sure things are running smoothly. How can teams or clients really evaluate whether or not a lawyer that they're speaking with or interested in working with is a good fit for their situation or their company? It really depends on what the founders are looking for. And most of my answers are going to start with it depends. It's the very lawyer answer, but I'll give it to you in a very broad answer to start. What I was always told was that the difference between a good lawyer and a great lawyer is not just somebody who knows the answer, but can tell you why something is the case, why this answer is the case. They're not just a parrot, but they understand the history and development of the law over time. They get a sense of the spirit of the law and how these things have changed and molded and how they got to be where they are now. They really have a complete mastery of a particular area. It's really tough to get there. Really tough. Lawyers, it's one of two professions where you actually get better with age. That's why there's all these 85, 90-year-old partners roaming around the halls of these old law firms because they just have silos of information. And they actually get better at understanding the development of these legal regimes over time. Obviously, look for somebody who can give you a complete picture, but not waste your time and bullshit you. Somebody who listens, who as you're describing something to them, maybe they give you an analogy and you're like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. What we're building is like that. And you have an open conversation. You really get a sense that they understand the technology that you're building, the audience you're catering to, your vision for where you want to take the business. The ethical rules for lawyers requires that clients set the goals and the lawyers provide the means to achieve those goals. So making sure that you have a lawyer who is able to recognize and acknowledge what your goals are and figure out what will be the best way to bring you from A to B efficiently. It's just a broad throwaway sentence for what it means to find a good lawyer. But long and short summary is somebody with good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, good vibes are super important. And I think that even in hiring generally, whether it's for a GC or whether it's for an engineer or anyone else, I think you can generally pretty quickly pick up on whether or not the vibes are a good fit when you start to speak to someone within the first five, 10 minutes. So I definitely agree with that. Kind of trust your gut there and try to think critically about the situation. But yeah, vibes. <laughs> and one more thing, just because it is important. Business units, founders are going to have a particular risk tolerance. Lawyers are going to have a different risk tolerance. Different lawyers but different firms are going to have different risk tolerances. It's one thing to have a particularly high risk tolerance as a founder because you just don't know the law or understand the legal ramifications of getting in trouble for a particular thing. Then you adjust your risk tolerance. It's another thing to have a risk tolerance and just don't give a shit if you're going to get in trouble. And it's a third thing if you have a high risk tolerance because you want to grow as fast as possible and you have cogent reasonable arguments for why what you're doing is okay. Whatever it is, you have to find a lawyer who's at your risk level, or at least understands the risk level you're willing to accept, and is able to accommodate that. I don't think that means finding a lawyer who's a yes man. I, I certainly don't think that's the case. If they're just going to give you yeses all the time, they're not doing a good job. That's probably a violation of their ethical obligations. But you find somebody who's willing to help you work through things, and especially in the Web3 space. Folks are too quick to just say no and shoot down ideas and then not 
think critically about some more aggressive positions that will meet eye to eye with what the founders are looking for. That's fine. It's okay to be more conservative, but if what you're looking for is something that's more aggressive, because it's either take this particular business route where the business fails, then make sure that you have a lawyer who's prepared and thinks carefully about these issues and can come to a reasonable place and opinion that can be helpful. And also, there's a pretty big distinction between in-house lawyers and law firm lawyers and risk tolerances. There's a saying, law firm, big law lawyers, their standard they shoot for is perfection. And in-house lawyers, uh, the standard they shoot for is progress. So that's something important to consider also. As you're shopping around for a lawyer, if you're looking for somebody at a firm before you hire your first lawyer in-house, you may get a different response than you would get if you hire a general counsel who's down in the dirt, who understands the facts a little bit more, who works with the business day to day, and is able to better manage some of that legal risk and can afford to give you a more aggressive position because they understand the rest of the business, the totality of everything that's going on, and they have a vested interest in seeing the business progress in a way that comports with their ethical obligations. That's super helpful advice. I think the point that you raised around the team needing to have very clear goals for what they're trying to accomplish when they are evaluating working with lawyers is really important because even in my own personal experience, a lot of the time teams will go to a lawyer or go to a law firm and say, hey, I want to do this and can you just help me stay compliant? And the lawyers always come back with, okay, well, what is your business? What are your goals, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that it's actually really important to state that very clearly. Okay, yes, you need to very clearly understand what your goals are as a business and be able to communicate that to the lawyer who can then also work with you to assess if your risk tolerances are in line. So I think that's a great point that you made there. Do you think that there are any areas within legal where teams should not be delegating to lawyers at all? Or or are there any areas where you feel like it's a lot more difficult for a lawyer to really make a proper whole assessment of risk? So to the first part of that question, are there legal issues that you don't think you should delegate to your lawyers? No. If you don't think that your lawyer knows the answer, if it's your outside law firm lawyer and they don't know the answer, find an expert who does or ask them if they have an expert who knows. Lawyers, if they don't know the answer, they'll say, oh, I don't know, but I have a colleague who does and I'll get them on the line. Or I have a friend who does, I can get them on the line. Don't be afraid to just give stuff to your lawyers because they'll always have a friend with an answer or hopefully they have a friend with an answer. Non-legal things, definitely don't give your lawyers the financial accounting responsibilities. Lawyers in math don't vibe. I'd love to ask you about this. I'm not super familiar with the term. What is this concept of, quote, air cover and... Do clients get air cover by engaging lawyers to advise on tough questions? Certain statutes and violations have mental states that are attributed to those violations. So you can only violate the statute if you do it knowingly or intentionally. If you call a lawyer and that lawyer gives you advice that what you're doing probably doesn't break the law or definitely doesn't break the law or something like that, you're not knowingly breaking the law. Because you have a reasonable excuse or defense that I didn't violate this law knowing that it was against the law because my lawyer said it was legal. You get a little bit of coverage there, scaling up depending on how legal the activity actually is that you're doing and the 
knowledge that you have that the thing is not just, yeah, maybe it's plausibly legal, but it's like you have some more certainty that it's legal. Outside of that, the memos that you get, let's say you're launching a token and you get a memo from a law firm that says, hey, we think that your token offering is legal and okay and it's not going to get you in any trouble. That's like great, but the SEC can just disagree with you. And so that memo doesn't really do anything for you other than show that you put some thought into it, which isn't really going to be enough to placate them. So again, that's the knowing violation and you're armed with knowledge that this thing is not illegal. It's useful in limited context, but I wouldn't overly rely on it. I see. I have seen law firms offer to write memos like that, do research, put together that written documentation, but it also seems a little like not something that firms are super eager necessarily to send to their clients or to do for their clients because each of those opinions, those written opinions are also heavily caveated given the sensitive nature of the industry. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That was just like one example, but yeah, token memos are really hard to give unless you're crazy qualified to the point where it's practically worthless. You can't rely on this thing. Who knows? The industry changes all the time. Regulators disagree. It just gets so caveated and qualified. There's just no value in them. It's just stupid convention, but a lot of listing platforms will require that you have these memos, which is just a big waste of money. It's a CYA for the listing platforms. That's helpful to know. With all of the stuff that's changing very constantly in crypto, especially in the legal and the regulatory space, it's very dynamic. There's a lot of gray area. How do you stay up to date on all the developments? How do you keep your opinions evolving as you receive new information? Are you involved in any crypto legal groups or anything like that? So my mentor who I worked with at Sullivan and Cromwell, Ryan Miller, who's now the GC of FTX US, I asked him this question a couple years ago, and he told me, read everything. <laughs> so that's the advice I'm going to give is read everything. If you want to stay up to date, you got to keep reading. It takes time, but it's important. It'll keep you abreast of what's going on. And then on top of that, talk to people, make friends in the legal space. The LexDAO or the LexPunk Army are two great groups that you can join as an attorney or as even as a law student and you want to learn more about what's going on in the crypto space. And there's tons of folks in there who are happy to chat and just love to banter about things that are going on. I'm in LexPunk Army. I've contributed before. I co-authored a comment to the SEC about their proposals to change Reg ATS. It's definitely worth doing because it keeps you sharp. If you missed something, you don't have time to read. Other people are going to read it and talk about it. Definitely recommend reading and making friends. That sounds pretty good for someone like me who's an introvert. Reading and making friends <laughs> <laughs> to get my information sounds like a pretty good suggestion. The best part is you don't even have to make friends in person. You can just lurk and read. So if you really don't want to make friends, get in the Telegram groups and then lurk and just keep reading and don't stop reading. <laughs> it's so true. Telegram, Discord, Twitter. There's so many places where people are sharing ideas, thoughts, opinions. I feel like it's taken me a bit of time to curate my feeds, but now that I've gotten to this point, I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot of really great conversation happening here. The curation is definitely the hardest part. There's also some lawyers and stuff who post curated lists of people you should follow. All that stuff is good to keep up with. Yeah, definitely. For anyone who's listening who is a lawyer working at a big law firm or even a smaller firm, and if they're interested in getting into Web3, do you have any additional guidance or advice for them? 
I think reach out to the crypto lawyers. I haven't met one yet who's not the nicest human being in the world. I think that if you ever wanted to learn more about crypto or get involved and help, just raise your hand. That's what I did. I bugged Jed Health and Joshua Rivera. Jed's at Solana and Joshua is over at Blockchain Capital. I bugged them incessantly for advice and help. And Mark Waron, who's at Polygon Studios now. But yeah, just make some friends and talk to people. Like everybody's super nice. You can call me if you'd like to. Sorry if you hear the squeaking. There's a dog in the background with a squeaky toy. But yeah, definitely feel free to reach out. Everybody's super great. It's a good way to get started. If you're a law student, your law school may have some programs and stuff that you should get involved in. Take some of the classes as well. Dive in head first if you really want to. If you're at a firm, start knocking on doors. Figure out at the firm who does crypto stuff and literally just go knock at their door and say, hey, can I work on something? That's what I did. I bugged Ryan Miller every day, practically, at least maybe three times a week. Hey, is there any crypto stuff that's going on? Can I help? Can I help? Can I help? And then people recognize that. And then when there is stuff, of course, you're going to be too busy to help, but you're going to have to <laughs> make some time and get on those deals if you want to get it done. So it's definitely worthwhile if you can. I will say I've been extremely impressed at your ability to juggle recording this podcast so eloquently at the same time that you're watching your dog. Oh, she's a menace. She is a menace, but <laughs> it's okay. I can always just hit the mute button. She's so cute. Well, I would love to also talk about what you're doing at BNJ Studios, how you got involved as co-founder and GC, and what you guys are most interested in or excited by, how people might be able to get involved. Yeah, totally. BNJ Studios is a builder studio. The B and the J, neither of which are Brandon, it's Bartosh and Jordan. They are two of the, quite frankly, just the best developers in the Web3 system. They built 95% of all of the code on Solana relating to anything that has to do with NFTs, whether it's Metaplex, which they built all the code for, Candy Machine, which is how you mint NFTs, and then the auction protocol, and a bunch of other NFT projects and marketplaces and things. They really built everything front to back. What they love is building. And so what BNJ Studios is, is this birth of that desire for them to keep building things. What we do, rather than a venture capital studio or something where you deploy capital externally, we actually build everything in-house. So we'll develop all of these different projects from the pre-ideation phase all the way up through MVP. And then once the ideas and the projects are ready, we raise money for them. We find phenomenal talent to run these projects and take them from one to a billion plus. The first project that is coming around the corner soon is called Cupcake, cupcake.com. It's live. It exists. We had an awesome integration recently with Lollapalooza. It's definitely worth checking out. It's the future of the Web3 experience for NFTs. It's a super app that allows folks with no experience in crypto to become fully in the Web3 space with their own NFT in under a minute. So really cool technology. There'll be more about that in the coming weeks. I got involved from Jed from Solana, actually. We're buddies and I ran into him one day and he told me that Bartosz and Jordan were looking for a lawyer to build this studio. And any recommendation from Jed is gold standard to me. And then also, of course, Bartosz and Jordan are just amazing in the space and what they do and they're incredibly well-respected. So I had to take the call and then the rest was history. I really gelled with these guys and I believe in their vision and I believe in who they are and what they're trying to do. And it all made sense. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw a little bit about Cupcake last week. And so I'm super excited to hear more about where that project is headed. Again, thank you so much for your time. Really, really happy to have you on and get your perspective as a lawyer who's been working so much in the Web3 space with so many teams. So really, really appreciate your insights here. 
Of course, it was my pleasure. 